Many times we're weighed down by the magnitude of our problems. But in reality, our God is much bigger than any problem we face. This message is the second in the series, The God of Miracles. The message is entitled, God is Bigger Than Our Problems. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. Let me give you a little bit of history. We're talking about the God of miracles, and I want to describe in a few moments for you uh, really how to prepare yourself or maybe some steps to take to be prepared for or to open your life up to miracles. Obviously, miracles are things that only God can do, and we cannot force the hand of God to have miracles at work in our life, but there's certain things that we can do that will set us up for God to work, and there's steps that we can take. I want to talk about that a bit, but let me give you a little bit of the background uh, of the place that we are today. We're in Mount Carmel. It's a place where Elijah, uh, again, as we said earlier, uh, dealt with the prophets of Baal. And uh, to understand this, you need to go back in history a bit. It's the time of the kings, and there's a king of the northern kingdom by the name of Ahab. And of course, Ahab had married uh, his wife uh, named, anybody remember the name? Jezebel, exactly right. And they were extremely wicked. In fact, the Bible says that uh, no one had been as wicked as Ahab and Jezebel. They were extremely wicked people and they were very much into idolatry and all kind of wickedness. It's hard to even describe uh, the wickedness that went along with the worship of Baal and some of the other worship of other gods, but just uh, unspeakable acts that they would do and as a part of their worship. We'll talk more about that when we get to Megiddo and, and some of the things that the Canaanites would do there at an altar that I'll show you that will, that will just uh, be, be sort of uh, heartbreaking for you. But here's Ahab and Jezebel, and they brought Israel under the influence of Baal, and it's a terrible time in history. And God raised up a prophet by the name of Elijah. Isn't it wonderful to know that God never deserts people? In the midst of the toughest times and people turning away, God always shows up with somebody on the scene to help, okay? And that's a great thing. And so Elijah was raised up uh, for such a time as that, as a prophet of God. And, of course, he now is going to issue in some judgment and bring people back to their place of worship of God. And the way it starts is that Elijah prophesies. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 17. He prophesies a, a drought, a famine in the land. And when he prophesies this drought or famine, he goes and he hides by a brook uh, because obviously there's no food and the ravens come and feed him. And remember that story, right? The ravens feed him by the brook. And the brook dries up and he goes to a place called Zarephath and a widow feeds him there. And he's hiding because he's absolutely sure that Ahab and Jezebel are wanting to kill him because he's the one that has proclaimed this uh, pr prophetic uh, drought upon the nation. And so Ahab was looking for him. Jezebel wanted to kill him. Jezebel was killing all the Lord's prophets during this time. And so it was a very dangerous time to be a prophet, a very dangerous time to be someone that was following Jehovah God. With that being said, finally, uh, God speaks to Elijah and says, I want you to go and present yourself to King Ahab. Uh, the time for the drought has come. The time for really judgment and decision has come. And now we'll pick up the story with that little bit of background. Everybody understand the background, a bit of the history there? Let's pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse number 17. I'll just start there. We'll read a number of verses here that will set the stage for what I want to talk to you about in just a couple of moments. Verse 17, Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? So why did he call him a troubler of Israel? Because he thought Elijah was responsible for the drought. He'd prophesied about it. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather, notice this, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. Where are we right now? 
Okay, you got that, all right? So gather, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and all the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel was feeding all these prophets of Baal and Asherah and taking care of them and sustaining them during this time because again remember it was a time of famine so she was making sure Baal worship and Asherah worship was continuing. Verse 20, so Ahab, so Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. So notice that Ahab sent for all the children of Israel from all the different tribes and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. So that's where we talked about a moment ago when we were up on the top and we were looking out at the panoramic view. You can again imagine all all the nation, all the tribes of Israel coming and gathering in that gathering to watch what was about to happen on the top of this mountain where we are right now, Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long, now this is first, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Think about how sad that was. Elijah says, okay, here we are. Here's an opportunity for you to make a choice. If, if God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And nobody said anything. Nobody said, okay, we'll follow. Everybody's silent. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them, gather, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, and, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So Elijah says, give us two bulls. We're going to put them on an altar, but there's not going to be any fire there. And all these prophets of Baal, you can call on your God. And I'm going to call on my God, the Lord God. And whoever answers with fire... He's going to prove that indeed he's the real God. And so it's going to be a major test right now. Of course, Elijah's really stepping out, is he not? Okay, stepping out. I'll talk more about that in a moment. So they lay it out. Everybody said, that's a great idea. We'll see who answers by fire. Now, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourself. Let's choose whichever one you want and prepare it first for you are many and call in the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So they're crying out from early morning to noon, O Baal, hear us, O Baal, hear us. No answer, no response, nothing's happening. They start leaping around the altar trying to make something happen, trying to work something up, hoping that Baal's going to answer in some way. Of course, he did not. And so, and so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for if he is a god, either he is meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So he's really mocking them. He says, what's going on with your God? Maybe he's sleeping. He's on vacation. What's going on here? Okay. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom. So again, this was some of the customs that went along with this kind of worship uh, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out. And can you just imagine the picture right here in this area where we are? And it goes on to say, And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So come on, draw up as close as you can. Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones, of course, representing what? 
12 tribes of Israel, okay, 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the tr- and, and, it, and he also filled the trench with water. Now again, you, you're calling. Whenever have you ever made a fire before? You don't wet your wood before you try to start a fire, okay? You just don't do that, okay? And so what Elijah's doing, he's going to show that there's no trick. There's not magic happening here. We're going to make sure that this is a a real moment for God to show up in this situation. Verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Let Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their backs, hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. I don't know about you, I've never seen dust burn. How about you? And it licked up the water that was in the trenches. Now, now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let, them, let, let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Isn't it interesting that all the people who didn't want to say anything to begin with, now they've got something to say, right? Because they have seen a miracle, okay? They've seen a miracle. A miracle has happened. And the miracle happened because of one man, Elijah. Okay. And I want to just describe for you just briefly today what, what needs to be in place in our lives for miracles. Anybody have a need for a miracle in your life? Anybody? None of you? Okay. How about all of us, right? There's certain things that you need God to show up and do things for you that only God can do. And so we need those things in our lives that God shows up with fire and He does something that only God can do. We need the fire of God at work in the circumstances of our life. And for that fire to happen, we've got to learn something from Elijah. What do we learn from Elijah? I'm going to give you three things to remember from Elijah. Number one, you cannot let your problems intimidate you. Elijah was not intimidated by the situation. I'll talk more about that when we get to the Valley of Elah and David and Goliath. But one of the first things the devil will do to you and against you when you're trying to face an obstacle where you need a miracle, he will try to intimidate you and try to tell you, no, it can never happen in your life. It will never be possible. And so the enemy is the chief intimidator. He operates in fear. And I can only imagine the kind of potential intimidation that Elijah must have felt. He's one, and there are 450 prophets of Baal plus 400 other prophets of Asherah. He's only one against 850 false prophets. And it could have been very easy for him to back down and say, you know what, I'm not going to take a stand in this situation. But instead he did. So intimidation is something you're going to have to expect in your spiritual journey. The devil will do everything to intimidate you, to back you, up and to push your faith away and tell you, you know what, that can't happen to you. The second word is determination. When the enemy comes with intimidation, you stand up with determination. Okay? When the enemy tries to intimidate you, what did Elijah do? Elijah said, no, I am determined in this situation to see God at work. 
and there's a determination that comes by faith that says, I'm going to grab hold of God. I'm going to grab hold of the promises of God. I'm going to grab hold of everything that God is, and I'm just going to hold on in this moment. It took some major determination because Elijah had to stand alone. And sometimes in the situations of your life, you may not have any support around you. You may not have anybody cheering you on. There may not be anyone in your family, anyone in the environment around you encouraging you to believe, but you've got to be like Elijah and say, you know what, there's some intimidation, but I'm going to have a determination to my faith. When there was a ter determination, here's the last word I'll give you, there was an impartation. God showed up and did something that only God can do. When God comes down from heaven in fire and consumes the sacrifice that has been wet with water, and He licks up not only the, the, the stones, but the dust all around, and licks up the water in the trenches, you know that God has shown up. I will tell you something, that if you will not let intimidation drive you back, you'll stand up with determination, then there will come an impartation of God where God will show up and prove that He is God in your life. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything we can ask or imagine. Elijah proved that to be the case. He will, the, the same God, the same God that showed up and answered Elijah on this mountain is the same God that is at work in your life today. The same God that is at work in your life today. There's no different. He's the same God. And so you've got to remember that this, even Jesus said, uh, it was said of Jesus, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When He showed up for Elijah, He said, I will show up if you do not let the intimidation drive you back. You rise up with determination. I will show you my impartation and things can change in a moment when my fire comes down from heaven. I'm believing that we're going to make a stand wherever we've been intimidated by the enemy. We're going to say no to intimidation. Amen? Amen. Okay. We're going to say no, devil. We're not going to listen to your lies anymore. Okay. Because the devil's been lying to you long enough. Okay. And so you got to rise up and say, I'm not going to listen to the lies of the adversary. I'm determined to, to, to lay hold of God's promise, and we'll see God work in incredible ways. Well, good afternoon here in the city or town of Capernaum. And uh, this is one of the cities that you'll see in your Bible that's repeated over and over again because really it was the, during the ministry of Jesus, it was really his hometown. He operated from here. Uh, and Peter and some of the apostles would have lived here as well, as we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We'll be in verse number 21. I'm reading from the New International Version. They went to Capernaum. So where are we right now? We're in the city, the village, the town of Capernaum. They went, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue. Where did Jesus go? Synagogue. So... Uh, what I want to point out to you, and we'll learn more historically about it in a moment, but what you see to my right is a former synagogue, okay, the ruins of a synagogue. And from everything that I have learned about the synagogue, you see the darker stone down at the bottom here, okay? That would have been the original foundation, actually, of the synagogue that Jesus would have been in the, the, uh, the time that we read about here, okay? Another synagogue built on top of it, obviously, but this represents a synagogue that we're reading about in the Gospel of Mark. So it's incredible. In just a moment, you'll have the opportunity of actually walking into this area and uh, walking, actually, if you will, on the foundation of the very synagogue. This passage of Scripture is based, all right? So they went to Capernaum. Where are we? 
So we're actually in this place that the Bible speaks of right now. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, which we're looking at right here. The people were amazed at his teaching. By the way, Jesus would often go to synagogues and where he was invited to teach there oftentimes. And so this is one of those situations where he's beginning to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And so they sensed something about Jesus' teaching that was beyond just the normal. They sensed power. They sensed authority in what he was saying. There was something about him that was very different, obviously because he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. So I want you to just imagine with me for a moment that here's Jesus preaching in this synagogue, obviously fairly small. It's not a huge environment, as you'll see when you walk in in a few moments. And as Jesus was teaching, there's a man that cries out in a loud voice. He's possessed by a demon spirit. And uh, here's what he cries out. What do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so here's this, this man demonized. And what is represented here is the fact that demons knew who Jesus was. Okay? So the demons are crying out, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One. So this man possessed by a demon spirit, this demon is crying out of him, identifying in fact who Jesus was. Verse 25, be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And so here was this moment that this man interrupts the service, if you will. He cries out with a loud voice, uh, speaking of who Jesus was. Jesus addresses the spirit, and now the spirit, this evil spirit, comes out of him. This is why one of the things I want to remind you of is that the world that we live in, there are two dimensions of this world that we live in. There's the seen dimension, and there's the unseen dimension. I think a lot of Christians don't recognize that we live in a world that has a spiritual environment. In the spiritual environment, there are, yes, angelic beings that exist. There's the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit, but also there's a dark world of the Spirit as well. Demons are reality. Demons do exist. I think sometimes we kind of push that off as something sort of out of Hollywood or what sort of a mystical idea. But no, there are real demonic spirits that impact people, impact the way people think, the way people live. It's an important reality. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6, where he reminds us that the battle that we fight is not a natural battle. We're not fighting with flesh and blood, but with spiritual powers and realities in the dark realm of the of, of the world, the world of the spirit, the spiritual realm that 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 we have to be aware of. And so Jesus is contending with this demon spirit. He commands the spirit to come out of him. And of course, this man is delivered. Notice verse 27. The people were also, were also amazed that they ask each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And so they recognize, they, earlier they thought when he's teaching, boy, he teaches with a certain kind of authority. He doesn't seem to be the same kind of teacher as our teacher of the law are and then of course Jesus demonstrates his authority by casting out the spirit and they were even more amazed by that reality as well so what I want you to be reminded of today is that Jesus has power over the world of darkness that's the primary lesson I want you to learn okay so many times we we think about even the dark realm we get uh, we get afraid and we should certainly have an awareness of that but you must understand that with Christ in you there is victory over the realms of darkness Jesus has conquered the adversary okay we're no longer seeking to hopefully have a victory but on the cross of Calvary Jesus put a 
put, uh, dealt a, a blow of a victory over the adversary by his resurrection as well. So you and I stand in the victory of Christ, and because of his name, we have power over the adversary as well. So that's, that reminds us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Now, I want to continue the story here because it's very important. It goes on to say that uh, after this transpired, I mean, the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a teaching with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon, Notice verse 29. This is where I want you to see. As soon as they left the synagogue, so what's right here? The synagogue. They went to, with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus ministers here in this synagogue. There's a, there's a deliverance of a man with an impure spirit. And of course, people are amazed. And then with James and John, they go to the home of Simon and Andrew. And what you're going to see is just as you walk right over there. You see where this section is right over here to my, that I'm pointing to? They walk literally to the home of, of Peter's mother-in-law and their home. And so you see right here in scriptures, we'll walk there in just a moment, how short of a distance it was. And there's been an excav excavation there that you'll see the, the, the ruins of the remains of this very house that we're talking about in scripture. So it's an amazing thing just to bring the validity of scripture back to our mind that exactly what the Bible says is true is true. A confidence that we can have in scripture that the word of God is the very word of God. So just a quick reminder, two things today. Jesus has power over the adversary. You and I have power as well in his name and the scriptures are absolutely true that what Jesus said happened really happens because archaeology has proven the reality of the very thing you see in the word of God. So good reminder, great recognition of the power of the authority of scripture and his work in our lives. Fantastic. St. Anne Church and actually what is most important where we are today is the Pool of Bethesda and right behind me you see this pool uh, area that's the remains of the Pool of Bethesda and I'll talk about it here in just a moment from John chapter 5 and so if you want to turn there in your Bibles to a story that's uh, perhaps familiar to you in scripture a very important message that Jesus gave a very important miracle that Jesus did that teaches us a number of lessons in our own lives. And so I want to read for you from John chapter 5. I'll begin in verse number 1, and we'll read down through verse number, number 9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in, the, in, in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me. Into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. This is a story of one of the miracles that Jesus did actually here in the city of Jerusalem. 
And the Bible says that he came here one day during a time of Jewish festival, and he came here on purpose. He came here because there were a lot of sick people that would gather around this pool. And the uh, tradition, the idea behind this is there were times that an angel would come down and stir the waters in the pool of Bethesda, and the first one to get in would be healed. We don't know a lot about that tradition. Uh, we do know that it's recorded, especially in some of the manuscripts of the, uh, of the New Testament. Not all the manuscripts contain that, but uh, that's the background of the story. And so as Jesus came, there were a lot of people around this pool waiting to get well waiting for a cure, and he zeroes in on one particular person. I like to think about the fact that Jesus always sees every one of us individually. There's a lot of people here, but he's able to identify you and the need that you have in your life. And I noticed this morning as I was studying this passage again, looking over it, I want you to look with me specifically at verse number six, because I want to highlight just a couple of things. Before I do, let me mention the word Bethesda for you. The word Bethesda literally means the house of mercy or the house of kindness. And so the pool of Bethesda was a place that was known as the house of kindness or the house of mercy. But notice verse number six. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition, for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I want to draw out just a few phrases from that particular verse. The Bible says that Jesus saw him, one particular man, lying here by this pool. Now, there were lots of people lying here, right? The Bible says that this is where a lot of sick people would come. But his eyes went to one particular person lying there, and the Bible says that he had been in this condition for a long time. We, as you read the story, you find out that he'd actually been sick for and an invalid for 38 years. Almost four decades he'd been suffering. Someone would likely have brought him to this place every day. He had very little friends in his life because he said, no one is able to help me get into the pool. And so he was a man that was living in a lot of a, a, a lone, aloneness, if you will. He was a man that probably had very few friends, just someone that could get him back and forth to the pool of Bethesda. And he had been suffering in this condition for a long time. And the Bible says that Jesus approached him and said, do you want to get well? Would you say that phrase with me? Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? That's a very important statement because when you've been in a problem for a long, long time, you kind of lose hope that that problem is ever going to go away. When you've been in a situation for four decades, almost 40 years, your whole life has now been uh, identified with your problem. You've been identified as a person who can't get up out of their circumstance. And there are a lot of people that will go through life and having an issue that has lasted for a long time. And at some point in time, they've tried to get help from here and tried to get, get help from there and hope that someone would help them, if you will, get into the pool like this man was hoping for. But no one was able to help him. No one had gotten him into the pool for his cure. And so he'd suffered for a long time, and this long-term illness had brought him to the place of hopelessness. He did not believe that his life could ever change again. And maybe there's some of us today, and some of us that will be watching this by video, that you've gone through a problem that has lasted for a really long time. You'd hope that you would have gotten over it by now, but you've gotten to the place where it seemed like that particular issue seems to be something that just hangs on for a long, long time. For this man, it could have been his whole life, or most of his life. And you lose hope. And one of the things that, that happens to us over the long haul of problems is the loss of our hope, the loss that our future can be any different. And we then begin to identify with our problem and we become a victim of our problem. And we believe that the problem now defines us, that we are our problem. And I want to remind you, this is exactly where this man was. He was identifying himself as a victim of his circumstances that things could never change. Here's the good thing to remember. Jesus always comes in and he transforms victims into victors. 
He always comes in and takes people who believe they've been victimized by life and circumstances. And when he arrives on the scene, he lifts their victim mentality and brings them to the place of realizing there can be hope for your future. And so that's exactly what Jesus was doing when he asked the man the question, do you want to get well? He was stimulating in this man the hope that his future could be different than his past. One of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't define us about our past. He calls us forward to our future. And so this man, in this moment, he hears this question, and this is a very significant question because he's, he's been in this condition for 40 years. Think about this, almost 40 years. This, is how de this has defined him. And so to get well means that his life is going to change. Everything's going to change about his life. He's got to go get a job. He's got to find a new way of living, and life is going to be defined very differently. And so Jesus said, sir, do you want to get well? And there was something in this man's heart that said, yes, this is what I want with my life. I want to be whole. I want to be well. And then Jesus said to him, take up your mat and walk. That mat represented everything about his past. It represented everything about 38 years of his life. And he said, I want you to grab hold of that thing that you have identified with for 38 years of your life that has been your problem, that has been your circumstance, that has been what has defined you. I want you to grab hold of that mat. I want you to pick it up. I want you to carry that forward with you. I want you to rise up and go forward with a new dimension of life because I've now brought you hope. And the Bible in that moment says that the man rose up, grabbed his mat and began to walk and gave testimony to what Jesus had done in his life. You know, sometimes we're defined by our mats. I don't know what your mat is, what your problem has been, what's defined you in your life. It's been the thing that you, I look at and so say, that's, that's really who I've been for so very long. But Jesus comes along and says, do you want to live on the mat for the rest of your life? Or do you want to grab that mat, take it up and walk? And the good news is that this man made the decision to say, you know what, I'm not going to let my mat define me for my future. I'm grabbing my mat because now in this moment there was faith that was released in his heart. He believed what Jesus said was possible. It was not the man that cured himself. It was only Jesus in that moment calling him forth and that word that called him forth that brought healing and cure to his life. And so whatever has been in your circumstance for a long time, as it says here, this man had been lying there in this condition for a long time. I want you to hear Jesus coming to you today asking you the question, do you want to get well? And I'm telling you, my hand's going up saying, yes, Lord, I want to be well. How about you? Okay. I do not want to be defined by what has been in my life. I want to be defined by what you're calling me to for my future. I'm going to grab that mat that I've been living on. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to walk forward into the future that you have in store for me. There is hope for your life. Never, ever believe that, that, that your life is hopeless. With Jesus, there is always hope. He's always stepping in to people's world and saying, do you want to get well? And our answer needs to be a resounding yes. I think we ought to just practice, yes, Lord, right now. Would you say it? Yes, Lord. Okay. I want to be well. I want to be whole. I want to be restored. I'm picking up my mat. And I'm going to walk forward into my future. And that, in that moment, when our faith meets the power of God, there's the healing that comes to our life. Let's join together in prayer right here today and ask God to let this word be real in us and rich in us and uh, remind us of the fact that God is calling us from our mat to move forward to our future. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity of being here at the Pool of Bethesda here in Jerusalem. We're so very grateful for the story that's recorded in the Gospel of John and how you showed up that day in that man's life that had been defined by his problem for almost four decades. And in that moment, you called him to rise and walk, to pick up his mat, to go forward. And Father, I pray for every person that's feeling hopeless about something in their life. 
Lord, it feels like life has, has never changed yet. Things have always been the same. They've tried to get out of a circumstance and it seems to always, it always seems to, 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 to be around them and, and controlling their life. But Father, I pray that hope would be imparted to us today. I pray that we would hear the voice of the Holy Spirit asking us that question, do you want to be well? And may there be a strong, resounding yes inside of us. And let us today pick up our mat and walk forward into the future you have for us. Thank you for putting hope in our lives. But Lord, thank you that it's not, it's not a, a hope that has no meaning. It is a hope that produces healing in our hearts and our lives for the destiny you've called us to. For that, we thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray and you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus... I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out and you become a new creation. All things pass away, all things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time. If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash a new you. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.